Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28, Jesus says, But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness And you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. In rapid succession, Matthew is going to give the reader three parables. There are two kinds of sons that he's going to talk about in verses 28 through 32. Two kinds of farmers in verses 33 through 46. Two kinds of wedding guests in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. In this first parable, Jesus is going to illustrate how one son responds to the authority of his father. And how the other son responds to the authority of his father. In the second parable, Jesus is going to illustrate the religious authorities' rejection of the Son. In the third parable, he's going to illustrate the religious leaders' rejection of the promptings of the Holy Spirit. All of these parables are given in the context of a question. Remember, this parable is about verse 23. The religious leaders ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You'll remember that Jesus exposes their hearts by asking a question in return. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? You'll remember the religious authorities Or the religious leaders answer. They said, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask us, why then didn't you obey him? And if we say from men, the people are going to basically stone us because everyone thinks that John is a prophet in verse 26. And so they basically wind up saying, we don't know. And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things in verse 27. In one sense, Jesus has already answered their question. If the religious leaders accepted the work of God as it was found in John the Baptist, then they would accept the ministry of Jesus. But now Jesus is going to give further answers in the form of parables so that seeing they won't see and hearing They will not hear. You would do well to remember the purpose of a parable. 
Remember, the parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. The parable has the ability to reveal to people who want to know the truth and to conceal from those people who are content to deny the truth. Repentant sinners will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you'll notice something. You can't accept the Father and reject the Son. Jesus is going to remind the religious leaders that what they say matters, but what they do matters even more. And so he gives the parable. He's going to give the point of the parable. And then he's going to give the proof of the parable. Look at the parable again, a man and two sons in verse 28. But what do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. I want to draw something to your attention that you might overlook if you're not careful. When Jesus gives this parable, he's doing it not out of anger, not out of frustration, not out of the understanding that he's going to die by the end of the week. Jesus in love is once again reaching out to the religious leaders, giving them an opportunity to turn from their sin, to realize who God is and what God wants. You would be making a serious mistake if you think that Jesus is somehow playing a game of hiding the truth from them so that they won't be saved. And you're playing a dangerous game with yourself if you think that God is anything other than interested in you coming to grips with your friendship and your relationship with God. The story sounds so familiar. Many of you reading this are thinking, hey, kids in those days are exactly like kids today. It could very well be that even one of the religious leaders is, has a, is a man who has a vineyard. And he even has two sons. So when Jesus says a man has two sons and he came to the first and he said, son, go and work in my vineyard. It could very well be that one of the religious leaders said, hey, this sounds like me. I'm a dad and I have children. The statement, son, go, work today in my vineyard, is emphatic and it is imperative. The son was called to work. It doesn't leave us with the impression that you have a choice or that there's an option. That there is, in fact, an expectation of obedience And we would do well to note the word today. A man had two sons and he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today. Today's the day of obedience. Today's the day to bring in the harvest. The harvest is ripe. We can't afford to let the crop rot on the vine We must do what we must do, and we must do it now. Look what it says in verse 29. He answered and said, I will not. He doesn't say, hey, excuse me. 
Could I be excused? I have a headache. Could you please excuse me? I couldn't sleep last night and I threw up all night all over myself. Could you please excuse me for this reason or that reason? There's no excuse. This is blatant, willful rebellion. This is a son who says, I'm not going to do it. And you can't make me. By the way, the term afterward is significant. And when it says afterward, he relented or he regretted it. It says, but afterward, he regretted it and went. You may not understand the meaning of that word afterward. In Genesis chapter 15, there's a little bit of a clue that's given to us in verses 1 through 21 when the Bible speaks of God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15 and verse 13, the Lord predicts, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that doesn't belong to them or that is not theirs. And they will serve them and they will afflict you for 400 years. And then in verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. In other words, there's a prophecy. There's a response. There is afterward. Afterward seems to be a time period that comes to pass. We're not told how long it took for the son to change his mind. We're not even told what prompted the change. But we should pause for a moment and think deeply about what we're reading. The picture is of arrogant willful, ungodly rebellion. This isn't someone who simply says no to God. This is a someone who shouts N-O, spells no. But even the arrogant and the willful sinner is given space to repent. There is this place of afterwards, of pardon, of possibility, of the hope of new life. One translation reads, afterward he regretted. It's actually not the usual word for repentance. It means after much thought, or after thinking it through, or after considering. It seems to imply feelings, emotions, regret, possibly even remorse. It's the kind of remorse and it's the kind of regret that makes you willing to forsake your arrogance and your rebellion and your disobedience and a willingness to turn to the Father and then submit to the Father's will. In verse 30 it says, Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, What's interesting to me is the text and the parable, Jesus doesn't say, oh, and by the way, the father was angry and upset and he disowned the son. And he said, you know, I asked you once, I'm not going to ask you again. And if you don't do what I want you to do, then you're out. It doesn't say that. In the story, it simply goes on. He comes to the second. He says to him likewise. And he answers and says, I go, sir. But he did not go. 
Note in the parable, the son, the second son, gives prompt consent. He not only gives prompt consent, but he also shows compliance and respect. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I go, sir. Modern psychologists are fond of referring to this as passive, aggressive behavior. But in a less psychologized setting, for regular people like you and I, we could just call this lip service. And we've all seen it and we've all heard it. Sometimes we've given it and sometimes we've received it. Have you ever had a child who says, you say, I need you to do this. And they go, okay, I need you to clean your room. All right. I need you to do this or that. Okay, right away. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. And then they don't do it. Clearly, this is the compliant child. He makes promises. He offers warm feelings. He presents good intentions. And then the cloud of hypocrisy rolls in and his guilt surpasses the guilt of his insolent brother because he has no intention of doing what his father wants. And so in the parable, we quickly learn who the second son is. These are the religious leaders. These are the Jewish people who are compliant, who say yes to the kingdom message, who say, yes, yes, we believe that God is our father. Yes, we believe in Moses. Yes, we believe in the Bible. Yes, we believe in God's commands. They're saying yes to the outward appearances of Jew, Jewish observance and Jewish piety and Jewish rules and Jewish regulations. They said they wanted God's will and they found themselves saying, I want God's will for my life. But then they found themselves in a constant state of hypocrisy, religiosity, superficiality, disobedience. And it doesn't take a genius in verse 31 when it says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the implication being the religious leaders, the people who have already come to Jesus and asked them, by what authority are you doing this? It isn't the innocent bystander. It isn't even some compliant person who necessarily agrees with the ministry of Jesus. They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you do. The tax collectors and harlots are the pariahs of Jewish society. These are the outcasts. These are those who are publicly despised by the religious leaders, by the chief priests and the elders. This would be like if a person was a prostitute on Colfax Avenue or a drug dealer. Hey, what's your job? I'm a drug dealer. 
I'm a prostitute. The tax collectors and the harlots are the people who made no pretense whatsoever of being obedient to God, of knowing God, of loving God, of wanting to cooperate with God. And Jesus says these are granted citizenship in God's kingdom before you. Why? Earlier, remember, Jesus made it abundantly clear that the religious leaders have revealed their cowardice and hypocrisy in the position that they took towards John the Baptist. Now we can easily add charges not only of cowardice and hypocrisy, but of course, unbelief. They don't believe in John the Baptist. They don't believe in the message that he gave of turning from your sin, of turning to God, that there is forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and hope that's available to you. Jesus has revealed the religious leaders blindness, inward corruption, outward fruitlessness, and their answer is, note, it's the right answer. They're giving the right answer to the parable. The first. They have the right answer, but their response to Jesus is all wrong. How do we know? We'll peek ahead at verses 45 and verse 46. It says, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was (laughs) speaking of them. (laughs) Duh. But when they sought to lay hands on him, They feared the multitudes because they took him, that is Jesus, also to be a prophet. Jesus is using the parable like a mirror. He holds it up and he invites them to look into the mirror. He invites them to see themselves. The religious leaders were not like the son who eventually did the father's will, but rather they were like the hypocrite son who gave lip service but not heart service. Their cowardice, their hypocrisy, their guilt revealed the rejection of their own father's claims. They would have said God has the right to be in control of their life. And then God sends John the Baptist with a message of hope. And God sends Jesus with a message of hope. They claimed to long for the Messiah, but their actions revealed that they wanted to kill the Messiah. So when Jesus said tax collectors and prostitutes will basically go to heaven before you do, It doesn't mean that the self-righteous religious hypocrite is bound for heaven. But it could mean, it must mean, there's still time to repent. There's still time to change. There's still time to turn. There's still time for the person who says, you know what? 
I haven't lived a life of obedience and submission to God. I haven't lived a life of cooperation to the will of God. And remember, in the parable, what is the will of the Father? It's to go and work in the vineyard. Ultimately, what is the will of God? The ultimate will of God is that you will believe the truth about Jesus. That you'll believe the truth about yourself. That you'll believe the truth about your sin. That you'll believe the truth about sin's solution. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Clearly, you can turn to Jesus. You can cry out for mercy and grace and forgiveness. In the Bible, repentance always includes three things. That there's a change of mind. That's number one. That this change of mind, number two, results in a change of heart. Instead of loving sin, we set our affections on the things above. Instead of hating Jesus, we love Jesus. Instead of ignoring and replacing the Bible, we embrace it. Instead of shunning fellowship, we embrace it. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 97, we say, Oh, how I love your law. We begin to love what God has to say about himself and his word. This isn't simply about an act of the will, but it's also about God giving us a new heart and a new spirit. In Ezekiel 18.31, when the prophet was speaking to the children of Israel, he said, God's going to come and he's going to give you a new heart. He's going to give you a new way of thinking and a new way of feeling, if you will. We become partakers of the divine nature, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And then it is God who both wills and works inside of us to do according to his good pleasure. It isn't just simply a changing of your mind that says, hey, you know what? I was wrong about God and I was wrong about sin and I was wrong about, the, about what the Bible says. I've changed my mind. But it isn't the kind of change of mind that leaves the heart unmoved. Because real repentance in the Bible is going to be not only a change of mind, but a change of heart, but also a change of life. There is the evidence of a changed life. And a changed life is the powerful evidence of a changed mind and a changed heart. You've had this conversation, many of you, with your children or with your grandchildren or with your husband or with your, with your wife. They come to you and they say, I'm sorry. And you say, so you've changed your mind about this. Yes. What else has changed? What else do you want to change? I'd love to see a change of heart, evidenced by the change of mind and the change of life. Even though you may not see it. Jesus, even as he's giving this parable, he's giving the religious leaders one more chance to avoid an awful 
terrible sin. And so he gives the point of the parable. That's, again, we revisit verse 31. Sinners and the self-righteous. He says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of heaven before you. Jesus is making it abundantly clear. The man who owned the vineyard represents God. The Lord God possesses the kingdom of God. The first son becomes a type and a picture of those who are, for all intents and purposes, non-religious. What we might even call worldly, carnal, disconnected, separated. You can walk outside these church doors and you're going to meet people who make no pretense whatsoever of knowing God or loving God. In effect, these are those who on the surface rebel against the authority of the Father. And so Jesus uses tax collectors and harlots in the category. And again, remember, this is the selfish, the immoral, the sensual. But when Jesus says assuredly, it means this is the truth. Or pay close attention. How in the world is it going to be possible for tax collectors and harlots to enter into the kingdom of God before the religious people? Because Jesus is once again making it abundantly clear that it isn't the religious observance that God is looking for. It's the change of heart that comes in believing the will of God and the message of God. The reason sinners enter God's kingdom and the self-righteous religious leaders do not is because one believed John the Baptist's message and the other did not believe the message. And remember what the message was. John spoke of repenting of your sin. He spoke of turning to God. His message was a message of grace and mercy that precedes the time of judgment. Remember, we've already said that he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, not being baptized by him. It says in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, they hear it. They hear the message and they go, that's not for us. That's not for us. We're religious people. We're religious people. We go to church. We give to the poor. We read the Bible in the original languages. We have our own religious routine. But the proof of the parable is who believed the message. And that's why it says in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, that means when you saw who John the Baptist was, when you saw what he did, when you saw the way sinners responded to his message and how their lives were changed. Think carefully for just a moment. Were their minds changed? 
Yes. Were their hearts changed? Yes. Were their lives changed? Yes. And the religious leaders say, how do you explain this? How do you explain what is happening in this person's life? But afterward, you saw it and you didn't relent and you didn't believe him. In one sense, we have to understand when Jesus says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Well, in one sense, it must mean that John the Baptist came preaching the necessity of righteousness through repentance and faith in God's Messiah. But I'm going to suggest to you that when Jesus says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, that it must also mean in the way of austerity. The same way that the religious leaders, remember the religious leaders prided themselves on, we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with those that do. In other words, their life was defined by what we don't do. Here's, oh, we, we don't break, we observe the law. We are sticklers for observing the rules. Now, does John come as a rule keeper? Oh, yeah. Can anyone accuse John of not keeping kosher? Can anyone accuse John of being soft towards sin? It could mean that John comes in the way of righteousness, that this means that righteous, that means right before God. He lives a life of radical separation from sin, radical obedience to God. Remember, again, the religious leaders pride themselves on their radical separation from sin, their radical obedience to to God, but the religious leaders reject John's testimony and witness concerning Jesus. In a very real sense, John points out their hypocrisy. He comes to you in the way of righteousness. He comes to you in the way that you yourself profess. You religious leaders profess that you are godly. You profess that you have a right relationship with God, that you hear from God, and that you obey God. And here is a person who really does live the life that God has called him to. And you reject his testimony. The religious leaders do not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believe him. And the great tragedy of the religious leaders was they rejected the counsel of God. And what was the counsel of God? Believe the message of my servant. Again, remember the religious leaders will ask Jesus, what must we do to work the work of God? And Jesus' response is, believe in the one whom God has sent. And so the sinners believe John's message and witness. The publicans, the tax collectors, the harlots believed him. The first son did exactly what John said to do. I've changed my mind. I remember that an arrogant, 
willful, horrible, terrible, disrespect, oblivious to my father's counsel. I looked him in the eye and I said, no. What's interesting to me is for the person who says to me today, I can't come to Christ because I've done things. I've said things. My life was a life of rebellion, disobedience, disconnected. I knew exactly what God wanted me to do. And then I did exactly the opposite of what God wanted me to do. And the message of Jesus, it's not too late to change your mind. It's not too late to obey. It's not too late for you to go, you know what? I was wrong. I I was wrong about Jesus and I was wrong about the Bible and I was wrong about the gospel. And now I want to love him and I want to know him and I want to obey him. It's interesting. They saw the evidence of the changed lives and they still didn't believe. The religious leaders never really enter God's vineyard to harvest God's fruit because the religious leaders reject the biblical and the scriptural witness and ministry of John the Baptist. The the witness said the only way to get into God's vineyard is through faith in Christ. And the only way to serve God in God's vineyard is through Jesus. And so think about, again, the religious leaders who are saying, look, I want to know God and I want to love God and I want to serve God. But not on God's terms. I want to be religious and I want to be moral, but I don't want to accept by faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Well, guess what? Then you reject the message of John and you reject the message of Jesus. The religious leaders are Jews, they're observant Jews. They do religious things, they embrace religious rituals. They pray, they give to the poor, but Jesus measures their acceptance by God in terms of their willingness to hear the message of John and believe it. And by virtue of that, their willingness to hear the message of Jesus and believe it. Jesus said, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing, it says in John 15, 5. The religious leaders didn't believe John's message, and they didn't believe John's witness. They didn't believe God's Messiah. And so the religious leaders stubbornly refuse the message of John. They stubbornly refuse the message of Jesus. They won't be persuaded either by the truth of what's being said 
or the truth of the lives that have been fundamentally changed by that message. So what are some of the great lessons we should quickly note about this parable? Number one, true beliefs are responses tested by time. You know what both sons had in common? Did both sons answer their their father? Yes. And what was their true belief eventually known? In other words, when the first son said, no, did he change his mind? And then go to yes. Did the second son say, yes, but then he changed his mind to no? The reason why this becomes important is it turns out that the first response isn't necessarily the last response. Just like you. Just like you. I want to know you and I want to love you and I want to serve you. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to change. My life is going to be different. I've changed my mind. And I believe that God has changed my heart. And God is in the process of changing my life. The second son claimed he would obey. And then he refused. In the end. In the end. What they finally did is what mattered most. What will you finally do? What will be your response? The religious leaders thought they were close to God, but they were far away because they rejected God's messengers and God's message. The harlots and the tax collectors thought that there was an infinite gap between who they were and what God wanted. And both John the Baptist and Jesus said, I'll close the gap by making you something that you could never be all by yourself. I'll wash you. I'll cleanse you. I'll forgive you. I'll give you a brand new life. No wonder the New Testament writer could say, If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. The tax collectors and the harlots could become different because they were willing to believe God's message and God's messenger. And number two, your profession of faith will be tested. I'll go. Okay, I won't. Okay, your profession of faith is going to be one or the other. I don't believe that there is a God, and I don't believe that there is a Jesus, and I don't believe that I am a sinner, and I don't believe that I need any of this stuff that you guys so desperately need. And then you walk out the door. And all of a sudden, the real world starts to cave in on you. And you begin to realize, what if, what if it's true? What if everything that Gina said at church is, what if, what if the Bible is true? And what if sin is real? And what if it's a huge problem? And what if the only way that I can solve that problem is by receiving Christ as my Savior? Or for the person who says, okay, I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior. 
but then you live your life as if none of it is true. Well, that brings up number three. Obedience becomes the true test of spiritual health. Obedience is the true test of spiritual health. We might, on the surface, after talking to the first son, if if, if we just simply went on what both children said to their father, you might draw the wrong conclusion. Imagine if the only thing you knew is you saw a father say to his son, please go work in my vineyard, and he goes, no! Please go work in my vineyard. Yes, sir! If you don't wait around to see which one actually goes in, you might be deceived. And number four, people who resist the gospel may be closer to faith than any of us ever imagined. For the person who says, no, no. They say no to the Father. They say no to his will. They say no. You might have a defiant child or a grandchild, a defiant husband or wife who's shaking their fist at heaven and they're saying no. And you're about to lose all hope because you think, my poor son, my poor daughter, my poor loved one is so estranged from God that I can't even imagine a world in which they change their mind. But God because of his grace and his mercy, will give us space to repent. And number five, the gospel of grace will get through to the people of grace. Grace will find its way into the heart of the person who longs for it. Remember the purpose of the parable. To reveal truth to those who want to know it. To conceal the truth from those who want to deny it. And the parable will have its effect. It will touch the heart that wants to change. And it will remain meaningless to the person who is deceived into thinking that they're just fine the way that they are. Apart from God, apart from Christ, and apart from the gospel. We're going to have communion in just a few moments. I'm going to have Chris come back up and we're going to close in a song. But let's just pray for a moment, and this will give us, again, an opportunity to participate in communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray in particular for that person who, because of willful, stubborn, persistent disobedience, finds themselves in a position of darkness and emptiness. Lord, I pray that they will come to grips that it's not too late. 
And for the sinner, Lord, who is the religious person, they go to church. They read their Bible. They live in a world of safety and security, thinking that they're not guilty of anything gross or anything wicked. But they've neglected the most important thing that a person can do. And that's by faith. Simple faith. Simple faith. To believe that they're a sinner. And that Jesus Christ is the solution to their sin. And Heavenly Father, even as we have communion right now. And we remember Jesus' parting words to his disciples. On the night that he was betrayed. That he gave thanks and praise. And that he broke bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. And again he gave thanks and, and praise and he took a cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood. The blood of the new. Not old. The new and the everlasting covenant. A new agreement where sacrifice would result in the, sh in the forgiveness of sin. Lord, Jesus invited his disciples to eat the bread and to drink the cup and to do so believing that what Jesus is doing will have a new effect and that it will provide an everlasting resource. And Heavenly Father, again, we're reminded that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you do it, you show my sacrifice and my soon coming. Lord, even as we participate in this communion. Lord, we want to renew our covenant with you and we want to remind ourselves of our commitment to you and our willingness, Lord, to not just simply say yes, but to do what the Father's asked us to do, to believe, to respond, to obey to participate in this new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together.